Hello and welcome to this WRI podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton and today the issue is food security in the wake of the Covid crisis. Our food programme held a webinar to examine the key issues, starting off with David Nabarro of the Imperial College Institute of Global Health Innovation. He spoke on what he had learned about vulnerabilities in the food system during the crisis. The virus has revealed some weaknesses in human systems that are linked to vulnerabilities in planetary systems. One of the areas where we've seen enormous vulnerability relates to food systems and nutritional outcomes. Food systems have proven to be actually virtually universally uh, at risk of the impacts of COVID and of measures to contain the virus. They are not fit for purpose. They don't serve the farmers adequately. They don't respond to the needs of poor people who are hungry and at risk of malnutrition, particularly women and children. And they also are far too long and too easily disrupted. So there are a number of findings already that suggest that we need to pay attention to the impacts of COVID when it comes to food systems transformation. That's just one example. Look at the vulnerability of systems for employment, particularly for people who are in the informal sector or on daily wages. Look at the vulnerability of the systems for caring for older people. Look at the vulnerability of our systems of custody. Look at the challenges facing workers in so many sectors because of their working conditions, whether it's processing meat or fish, or making garments, or other manual actions. Look at the challenges faced by people who provide services right across all sectors, transport workers, security guards, and people who just keep the basic engine of society going, but at the same time are the least well off. We have an extraordinary window of opportunity. COVID is showing us some of the challenges that have to be addressed as the world works out how to be resilient in the faces of this crisis. But the same issues apply when it comes to being resilient and active in the face of the crisis associated with the destruction of nature, the crisis associated with the failures of the food and nutrition systems, and the crisis associated with ongoing climate change. David Nabarro. Next, Ndidi Okonkwo-Unwaneli of Sahel Consulting Agriculture and Nutrition spoke about how the crisis had affected African food systems. Our region has been equally affected by COVID-19 and SMEs have been quite hit. First, we've had partial and complete lockdowns in response to COVID-19 and the region's already fragile food ecosystem is suffering. There have been disruptions in supply chains, challenging transporting produce from farms to markets, restrictions in movements between states and countries, and reduction in remittances from the diaspora. We've seen food prices rise by 10 to 50%, and in my own country, in some value chains like cassava, by 100%. And this has definitely affected households, and we're seeing a deepening of urban hunger and hidden hunger. 
Malnutrition is on the rise, and according to ECOWAS, the number of food insecure people will grow from 17 million to 50 million by August 2020. So this is quite alarming. Now, how are companies responding? We're seeing companies embrace technology and innovation like never before, ensuring that they can reach their consumers directly by offering online services, using telephones. So we're seeing technology exploding everywhere. We're seeing consumers and processors shorten their engagement and then shorter value chains. We're seeing a lot of entrepreneurs pivoting. So if an entrepreneur was making biscuits because of the decline in purchasing power, they are pivoting to bread, which they believe is considered something that people have to eat on a daily basis. We're seeing a lot more collaboration and data sharing because entrepreneurs are committed to survival. Now, about 50% of the entrepreneurs in our network have either shut down temporarily because of raw material shortages or are struggling to sustain their operations. But another 50% have pivoted quite rapidly. In terms of government response, what we're seeing is a lot of policy discussion about how this period is teaching us that we have to become more self-sufficient and dynamic primarily because of restrictions in global trade and exposure to other world regions as they clamp down on exports from their countries. We're seeing discussions about how to rebuild in ways that we've never seen before and the importance of data. We're also seeing our government step up to partner with faith-based and community organizations and private companies to feed the most vulnerable right now. And interesting financial incentives, loans and grants to help companies rebuild. And finally, very robust protocols around how companies should act to protect their staff and their customers, and a reimagining of how our open-air markets should function. I believe this is actually a mixed blessing for Africa. For too long, we've talked about the fragile ecosystem, and we haven't done much about it. So this is a wake-up call for us. I'm seeing individuals who ordinarily would not collaborate, especially in the private sector, saying, let's work together to build and rebuild and reimagine. And these type of conversations are very, very exciting. We're pooling data across countries and within countries to ensure that we have data-driven policymaking and that governments are empowered and held accountable for how they invest in this sector. Private sector is also saying we're not going to leave it to government alone. We're going to work with faith-based organizations, development partners, and other key stakeholders to rebuild. Yes, it's been tough. The issues are real, but we're going to emerge stronger. That was Ndidi Okonkwo Nwaneli. Third up was Gerda Verburg, United Nations Assistant Secretary General. This is a systems challenge. It's a food uh, challenge, but it's also a health challenge and a climate uh, challenge. The first step is to make sure that the food systems that are already there are not disrupted by lockdowns, but are ensuring people to keep access to market and to be able to afford to buy nutritious uh, uh, food. And there we have the social protection system that needs to be involved. The health system needs to be able to treat people and to test people, but also to provide them with the nutritious needs they have, especially mothers and uh, children. So what needs to be done is at country level emphasize that this is not a challenge of the Minister of Health, not a challenge of the Minister of Agriculture, nor of the Minister of Social Protection. Leadership at country level needs to be lifted and the Prime Minister needs to be there to lead 
bring the different departments together and make the ministers work together because whatever it is about, a systems approach at country level will require different ministers. For the climate issue, the Minister of Environment and Climate cannot deal with it. For health issues, it's not only the Minister of Health. You need an all-of-government uh, approach, a multi-sectoral approach. Then uh, the second point, the stakeholders. It is still a kind of race which donor can put what money in order to make sure that a crisis is not too deep in a country. So let us learn and work together here uh, from that country perspective. Leave your logos and egos at the door as global uh, institution and align, align, align behind the government. Make sure that you build an important prevention block that can be done by including nutrition services. And look at country capacity building in order to be ready for the next challenge, be it the virus, be it the climate, be it whatever, the locusts or whatever. That is the big lesson. That's the only way that we can come out of this uh, crisis and be ready for the next one. Gerda Verborg. Next was Claudia Martinez, a board member for the Green Climate Fund on the situation in Colombia. Colombia, as you know, has 45 million people, of which around 30 million people are considered monetary poor. And many in the informal economy lost their jobs, as well as migrants from Venezuela. So we have a lot of people there with needs. During the last decades, the rural population has remained more or less constant, but the urban population has grown. So the rural farmers are supporting these food systems on their own for a growing population in the cities. And if we see the country has more or less 45% of informal labor, but that number raises in the urban sector to around 86. Now, Colombia imports around 30% of the food, mainly maize. We're the third importance of maize in the world, but also soya and rice and wheat. And the government is giving preferences with tariffs exemptions to these imports. But the government is not giving that same exemptions to the poor, to our farmers in in the country. So I think there is a little bit of discontent of why we're importing food and what is being done with the peasants in the country. On the other hand, people do not have the means to buy food. And uh, before COVID, 50% of Colombians didn't count with sufficient food for a healthy life. And this situation obviously has worsened during COVID especially because poor people tend to buy non-perishable food instead of buying, for example, fruits and vegetables and healthy proteins. So there is a big problem in terms of food nutrition. And the government obviously is giving an emphasis under the current circumstances to ensure that all Colombians eat, not necessarily that they eat healthy food. In the longer run, obviously, we have to put more attention in healthy and nutritious diets There is a lot of worry of what will happen in the next three months to see if farmers are willing to continue producing under the current crisis. We're also seeing a lot of problems in terms of distribution, as in the case of China. Our biggest format markets have had COVID outbreaks and uh, they have been closed in the major cities. Logistics in the distribution of food have become a big problem. 
but this obviously has unleashed a bigger problem, which is intermediation afoot with raising prices. So there is a lot of studies going on to reduce the monopolistic approach of central markets. And also a lot of ideas have emerged on, for example, how to supply local stores with non-perishable food, you know, with fruits and vegetables, etc., which demands a lot of logistics and approaches. We also have seen deforestation increase. That's a tragedy. As you know, Colombia is the second richest biodiversity country in the world. So the connection between protect and produce need to be there. And we need to put more than ever that in the central of the debate. We need to acknowledge that we have 50% oceans and that maybe the proteins of the future will come from our oceans. So there is a lot of thought about more food, but diversifying food production, not only today, but in the future. Claudia Martinez. The panel then answered a succession of questions from the webinar's audience. You'll hear the moderator, Ed Davies' voice later on. But first, David Nabarro. How important did he think equity has been in the crisis? Inequity creates conditions which add to the likelihood of contagion and sickness. And we've seen it with many other conditions, but now it's striking us so smack in the face that it will not be possible to live in a way that enables society to continue and economies to recover as long as COVID is enabled to go on causing difficulty because we tolerate massive inequity. The starting point is we've got no choice. We also know how to do it. It's not as though it's the toughest job in the world. Identifying and working with and listening to and engaging with poor people is something that we all need to learn to do. My only problem is that sometimes we forget to do it. Ndidi, a question for you about how to ensure food security in sub-Saharan Africa, including in Nigeria, does not lead to further land degradation. So I think that the great thing about the 21st century is that there are lots of new innovations that allow us to increase productivity without destroying our lands. Um, And the challenge for us as entrepreneurs is to invest in those innovations. And across the board, we're seeing sustainable approaches that are adaptive to climate change, that also are regenerative and leverage what our communities can provide and what our communities can produce. I would challenge a lot of the entrepreneurs working in Africa to think through how to leverage those technologies. We're seeing a lot of approaches to water management, soil health and soil fertility, um, leveraging indigenous approaches that we've neglected for many, many centuries. We're embracing these technologies in ways that give me hope, but obviously it's not widespread. And so what do we need to do to ensure that this happens? We need a supportive policy environment. We also need policy around food safety and standards because we're using a lot of caustic material that is banned in many other parts of the world. And we need to educate our farmers and to empower them to reject some of these crop protection products, crop health products that are really bad for them and bad for human consumption. And then thirdly, we really need to ensure that we have strong consumer protection agencies and strong farmer organizations and industry organizations and associations that set standards and elevate those standards. I think if we do that, I think we'll see a lot of promise and a lot of progress in the region. Gerd, I have a question for you about particular examples of countries or communities that are inspiring you at the moment. 
I would like to mention Malawi because Malawi has included uh, nutrition in policies that are now brought up by the community uh, level. They don't have enough money to uh, get rid of all forms of malnutrition and to really um, finance everything, but they have included in local, it in local leadership and mayors are calling the Minister of Health or the Minister of Food or the Minister of uh, Development uh, uh, in a country and sometimes the Vice uh, President to say, hey, we want to do more and better for our people. We uh, feel that we are responsible, make it possible for us to do so. Another country is Senegal, who has also been able to implement it, but can do better, but also because of a lack of resources and sometimes a lack of incentives. If I talk to a minister in, uh, in Africa and I talk to a minister of agriculture, when uh, she or he talks about uh, food uh, and nutrition, they mean calories. But that is not good enough. And what many decision makers and decision advisors do not understand is that good nutrition is not only making the body more resilient and living up to potential, making people more productive, but also it is feeding uh, the cognitive development. And once decision makers understand this, they know that they have to invest in their people, in their health and in their nutrition in order to create development. Costa Rica and Colombia are leading countries in combining uh, investment in health, nutritious food, and in rewarding farmers for their contribution to safeguard uh, nature and planetary uh, natural resources. There was also a question for Schengen Fan of the China Agricultural University about the use of food export bans in the crisis. I do think the trade export bans are a very bad idea. During 2007-2008 food price crisis, many countries used export bans. In our region, rice price shoot up 300% in six months. Many poor consumers suffer because they have to pay higher prices. But this time, some countries like Vietnam, Cambodia, or even Egypt, Kazakhstan, Russia, plan to use export bans. The ban of wheat export, rice flour export ban, make sure that domestically they have enough food supply. However, the, the global community worked together, gave them pressure not to use export bans. I'm happy to report to you that many countries have already dropped the idea. G20 Minister of Agriculture issued a declaration asked no country should use export bans. So I'm really sort of happy to observe that they've been done. One last question for all of you. What one thing would you most focus on in response to COVID-19, either nationally or globally? So here I wanted to emphasize timely and a transparent data on food prices, supply and demand. So if we have the timely data, then we can really design certain policy or certain intervention to make sure that we can address the shortages somewhere in the market somewhere. So the price is good proxy in a very short period of time. That's very critical. Let's make sure that we connect the data through cell phone or through internet to make sure that that information is shared with everybody transparently. Um, at the global level, don't start with inventing news, new ideas and trying to find funding for it and drop one-size-fits-all uh, solution to countries. But instead, put yourself in the shoes of country leaders 
make sure that at country level, uh, agendas are combined. Health agenda, food and nutrition agenda, but also the climate and environment and social protection and uh, job prevention agendas, the social agendas, but also the climate agenda. If I had to pick one priority, it would be to focus on SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises, as the engine of innovation and growth in the ag and food landscape, especially SMEs run by women. In many of our countries, 80% of the food that is actually produced and distributed is by small and medium-sized enterprises. And unless they are thriving post-COVID or even during COVID, we're going to see huge destruction of a lot of the gains that we've made in our countries. So investing in this group through innovative financing, catalytic support, skills transfer, and the use of technology and innovation will be critical. In terms of the role of multinationals, I think that's an excellent question. And I think all our countries need homegrown solutions to dealing with multinationals. And one approach is actually to demand for an investment in local sourcing. Brazil did 30% local sourcing. I'm pushing for 60% local sourcing. We need shorter value chains, but we need our multinationals to invest in the countries where they sell their good food. And if they invest in the countries and source from those countries, they'll improve the lives of the farmers, but they'll also unlock tremendous potential across the value chain. So these homegrown solutions that demand that will really make a huge impact. And that was Ndidi Okonkwo Nwaneli ending the shortened version of WRI's food security webinar, which also featured Gerda Verburg, David Nabarro, Claudia Martinez and Schengen Fan. There's a full-length version of the webinar on the events section of our website, wri.org, where you can also find details of up-and-coming webinars on a whole host of issues, including many on building back better in the wake of the COVID crisis. Thanks for listening and goodbye.